in this first conference, which is just called Sacramentality of Marriage and the Universal Call to Holiness, I want to begin by talking about marriage as nature. And it may be a strange thing to do, but I want to start by talking about uh, the, the marriage of Joseph and Mary. And that the reason is this. It's, um, Aquinas died. Thomas Aquinas was a Dominican in you know, the 13th century, and I promote his thought and also study it. Thomas Aquinas died before he could compose his final treatise on the sacraments. He was writing the part on uh, the Eucharist and the Confession when he had a mystical experience and stopped writing and died shortly thereafter. So he doesn't have a late treatment of the subject of marriage. But the place in, that in his late writings where he does write about the nature of marriage is interestingly on the questions on the Virgin Mary where he asks, did Mary and Joseph have a true human marriage? It's a reasonable question because the tradition teaches, the church solemnly defines, that the Virgin Mary remained virgin after her conception and after the, the birth of Christ. And so Joseph and she lived in perpetual continence or celibacy. So in other words, they didn't have conjugal relations. So how can it be a marriage? It's a good question, right? And so it's, you might say, well, that's a very peculiar place, Father, to start talking to married couples about uh, the ideals of marriage by taking the Holy Family insofar as they're celibate. But that's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I'm trying to look at the nature and definition of marriage, which he gives in the first paragraph of the text I've just given you, because he says something here he doesn't say anywhere else, or he says it in a very clear way about what marriage is, the nature of marriage. He says, I answer that marriage or wedlock is said to be true or real by reason of its attaining its perfection. Now, perfection is twofold, and any, of anything is twofold, first and second. What do you mean, St. Thomas? I mean, okay. The first perfection of a thing consists in its very form by which it receives its species. Like, that's like being a human being, right? I, you and I are each a human being with a, a species or a form. While the second perfection of a thing consists in its operation by which in some way a thing attains its end or its perfection, its final uh, purpose. Now, this is, the, this is the key part. Now, the form of matrimony consists in a certain inseparable union of souls. The nature of marriage is a friendship between a man and a woman. A certain inseparable union of souls by which a husband and wife are pledged by a bond of mutual affection that cannot be sundered. The end of matrimony is the begetting and upbringing of children. Okay. What's, what's really novel here is, so some people talk about the two ends of marriage, the end of friendship and the end of, of children, and Thomas Aquinas scuttles that language. He talks about the form of marriage and the end of marriage. And it's just, well, it's sort of marvelous metaphysically, because what he's saying is, it's a friendship, essentially, formally, determinately. What is marriage? It's the friendship between a man and a woman. What is the friendship for? It's a friendship for being in the same tennis club. No. It's a friendship to be in the same golf club. No. It's a friendship to go to the same movies together. Well, no. It's a friendship to, in spousal uh, union, seek to try to have children. And having children to raise them together and to educate them. Right? So the friendship is defined by the common project of what you might call a reproductive covenant an openness to life, an attempt to have kids together and raise them, which as some of you may have discovered, is quite an adventure and uh, changes you, both in the, the, you know, being a father and a mother is like 
I've never seen anybody have kids and not say it was like in some sense the most important best thing that ever happened to them and and then also look at me after like you know a year and say like I am my this human being is destroying my life um, but you know like so it's like it bends the human heart it opens us and it, it really creates a human an amazing project between the two the couple which is sometimes a stressful project but it's overall like a really incredible project of beauty but that's the heart of the friendship now what's interesting is that means that I mean just in terms of our recent travails our recent controversies if the couple don't intend ever to have children then they don't intend that for which the form of friendship is defined right so the, the, the final cause enters into the definition of the form it's like, if they just say, they come to the priest, Father, we'd really like to get married, we want to live together per- perpetually and play tennis together, but nothing else. I can't marry them, right? They have to intend at some point to have children. And that enters into the very definition of the essence, because the essence of the marriage is that it's for trying to have children. If they wish to have children and can't, they still have the essence of marriage, that's to say the union of hearts and the true friendship, and their struggle in having a friendship... Um, a marriage that where they cannot achieve what they had designed, desired together, but they can still have what is essential to, to the friendship of the marriage insofar as they wish to have children. And they are a mutual support to each other. <clears throat> so, friendship from the beginning is kind of, the friendship is in a way nourished by being open to the procreation and the education of children. Um, now he goes on to say, look, how can Mary and Joseph have a true Friendship, where he says, I mean, true marriage, he says, well, they have actually, because of the mystery of the incarnation, they have a child together. So they can live by, of the end without the means of conjugal love. So he says, in a way, it's really a marriage. I should mention, though, that um, what's interesting about the Holy Family is because they are contemplatives who live in a life of simplicity and uh, Worship centered around Christ, the Holy Family are also, in a certain way, the model of religious life. It's very strange that, in some way, Joseph and Mary are uh, exemplars of religious life and exemplars of family life. Neither perfectly the same as religious nor perfectly the same as the natural human family. But there's something interesting there going on about the, the wellspring of the church. At the beginning, you have a kind of plenitude in Mary and Joseph, but also something very particular, not ever repeated. The reason it exists in, is not primarily because of, it is because of the sanctity of Mary and Joseph, but primarily it's because of the incarnation, because she's the mother of God. So they live, they live for the, the, the child who is God become human, and that, you can't live of that just in a, in a sort of quotidian way. I mean, they can contemplate the mystery of Christ. They live in the mystery of Christ. It'd be like if you had the Eucharist on the host exposed in in the house wherever you went. Except it's, I mean, it is it's the same being, but it would be as if you I mean you would have the human the human nature of God, you know, running around the house, um, and that that must be believed. Uh, it's a it's sort of a mind uh, blowing, but it's it's it is the mystery. Now let's talk, so the, just, just a little word about the, the nature of marriage. Let me talk about nature as sacrament. Okay, 
Now, the medievals, when the medieval theologians talked about what the nature of a sacrament is, they looked at the first, always defend, they always designate a first formal effect and a second formal effect of the sacrament. So, in other words, sacraments do two things to you. You say, well, what are the two? It depends. So, like in baptism, they, uh, the first effect is to give you the character of baptism, which cannot be removed from the soul. So, like if you are baptized and you, and you go wandering away, like Ignatius of Loyola or some other you know, famous saint who had sort of circuitous path towards sanctity, and then you return to the Catholic faith, we don't rebaptize you. Because the first formal effect is what we call the, the rest sacramentum, the, the reality and the sacrament, is that your soul is marked by the character of baptism. The second effect is the great revelation of sanctification given to you by baptism, and those can be lost. Okay. So you get baptized, the, the characters mark on your soul, it cannot be lost. The grace of baptism is the sort of fruits of the, great, of the grace of the sacrament that can be lost. Okay. But it also can grow and grow and grow and grow. The character doesn't grow, the character's just there. But you can grow in sanctification. Okay, so marriage is similar. The first formal effect of marriage <coughs> is the indissolubility of the union of the souls. So that the friendship has been, as it were, sealed in Christ. So now these two people, because of the first formal effect of marriage, have been united in Christ in a certain way, indissolubly, by the bond of wedlock, by the bond of marriage. And the second effect <coughs> is that now their life together sanctifies them. What life together? Well, everything that, is, everything that is conducive of the friendship between them. Like, everything they live, to, they, everything they live together as friends, if they... Uh, live it from charity in Christ can become a place where they grow closer not only to each other but closer to Christ and that can take up all the sort of um, challenges of marriage as well as the joys so um, what is the fundamental way the couple get married in Christ. And how can how can they uh, induce the sacrament? Like, you know, who's marrying you, you probably have a lot of things, but a lot of you know this. But when the couple get married, how is it that they can empower be empowered to marry sacramentally? Now you know the Western church teaches unequivocally that it is the, the couple themselves that confect the sacrament by their mutual consent. The reason that, that can happen must be because it's grounded in their baptism. So what happens is that already we're baptized in Christ for a life of sanctification. Marriage is natural. And when two people marry naturally by willing the goods, the natural goods of marriage, when they want um, permanent fidelity, openness to having kids, and the education of their kids and mutual support of each other, educating them in Christ, when they want those, those goods, what happens is that the baptismal grace of the two seals somehow, in the consent of marriage, seals the mystery between them as a mystery in Christ. So they, it's a kind of funny thing. It's like a natural thing to get married, but getting married in baptismal grace is getting married in Christ. And that's what ratifies the sacrament. And so now your baptis- what, ha- what this means now is that your baptismal life of seeking sanctification in Christ is marital baptismal life. Like the way I live out my baptismal vocation is as a married person. It's analogous to like priestly ordination. I can't like decide 
I'm going to be a priest eight day, eight hours a day, and the other like times when I'm not in public, I'm going to just kind of not be a priest and set it to the side. I'm just a priest. It's all I am. And in a certain way, once you're married, you're sort of like a married person. I mean, as a Christian, you're a married person. So it has a kind of, there's a kind of quasi-totality to it. Weighty and beautiful. So the charity of life in Christ, that the couple live with each other, is meant to mirror Christ's love for the church. Now charity, what is that? Charity is the grace of God that God will give us and can give us in the sacraments to live our life in the love that Christ crucified has for the world. The, the love that Christ crucified has for the world can be conveyed to us through the sacraments. Now, a lot of us are very aware of our frailties, our weaknesses, our human limitations. And a lot of times we receive the grace, like mm, the grace of Jesus, mostly as feeling like a gift that we need to renew us. Like, okay, I'm just trying to hold steady here. I need to go to Mass. I need to go to confession. I need to receive God's grace to just feel like I'm staying in the game. And then I'm going to try to, like, not get angry at the guy who's cutting me off in traffic. And I'm going to try to get through a day at work. I'm going to try to have patience in my, you know, with my two-year-old and this kind of thing. I mean, that, that's like a standard, you know, list. I get them in confession. I've heard them, right? I also get my own little list. It's a little different than your list, but not that different than your list in some ways. And if you were in my state in life, your, my list would sound a lot like your list. And so there's a common human nature that's struggling under the weight of, like, you know, just all the human ob- uh, obligations. But in the middle of this, you know, we are like... We are like the proverbial lump of dough, and we don't feel like we're going anywhere or rising, but the sacraments are, in fact, giving us some kind of slow yeast, you know, that's like gently and over time conforming our hearts moderately to the mystery of Christ crucified. And um, I'm just thinking of friends of mine, Phil and, and Carol Zaleski, who I was talking to once about the sacrament of marriage and having kids. They said, oh, yeah, kids. Uh, that's crucifixion in slow motion. <laughs> so, but I think that it, that's, I, I like that image of like being sanctified in slow motion, like over time by like the thousand acts of parental love. And, um, but also spousal love, spousal patience, the, the mystery of death, the self, the inevitable compromises. So all those things that I'm sort of trying to emphasize that are kind of the kind of realistic patience aspects. But then, of course, what's also amazing is the natural joys of marriage, like human love. Yes, human love making, but also just like human compassion, human friendship, uh, support, the joy of being with another person, the rest and peace of living with another person in a stable way. This is all normal and natural, but it also can become supernatural in the sense that now we're resting with each other, we're being friends with each other in Christ, in, the, in a sort of mysterious and numinous, discreet but real kind of way that we're always with Christ because we're with each other. And that means that the married couple who are baptized in Christ and married in Christ become the guardians of each other's life in Christ in a gentle way, not always in an intrusive way. Like, have you prayed the rosary yet today? Why didn't you pray the rosary yet, Dave? I told you to pray the rosary during your commute today. I'll do that as soon as you pray the office. Right. No, I mean, not the militant guardian. Not like the prison guardian. But, you know, like the sort of discreet, um, 
this discrete uh, caretaker of the good of the soul of one's spouse. And that there's this kind of mutual bond that brings the two people together as guarding each other's life in Christ that's much deeper even than the natural bond of guarding each other's natural good. I mean, you know, you want the natural good of your spouse. You care how their job is going. You care how their own, how they're feeling. You care how they feel like their parenting is going. But you also care about their relationship with Christ. The sort of deepest secret you share together is actually your communion with the Lord. And that's, you know, you, that's a very elevated idea, but it is actually given to everyone who's married in the sacrament marriage just if they want it. We can access it more or less, we can think about it more or less, but we should think about it. We should ask, you know, the best way to grow in this is to ask Christ to grow in this. Just ask Him. Ask Him every day. Ask Him, I mean, it's a good idea every day of your life to ask Christ to sanctify you in the sacrament of marriage more deeply, to try to find him and, um, and hope, you know, try to make acts of hope, acts of faith and acts of hope. Lord, I do believe in the darkness of faith. You are present in me. You are present in my baptism. You're present in my marital, uh, um, in my marriage. And I hope in you to help me grow in sanctification Please help me today to find ways to grow closer to you in my married life. And this is important in the moments where things are going well. It's also very important when there are the crosses in marriage, when there's the times where you need to exercise the mystery of Christ's forgiveness, where you need to find Christ's patience, where you need to find Christ's conformity of his life to the will of the Father, where you need to yourself try to find ways to compromise and suffer together or suffer with one another's sadness or loss. The thing is that what's interesting about the grace of Christianity is there actually are no missed opportunities. Everything that is a blessing in the natural order and everything that's a challenge in the natural order is an opportunity to grow closer to Christ, which means that everything in, in marriage that is positive is an opportunity, and everything that's a little challenging is an opportunity to grow. You know, in religious life, I was taught early and it was helpful, that when you offend, I mean, I live with a lot of people, and it's, we're all very opinionated, celibate, clerical, intellectuals. <laughs> so there's, like, opportunity to offend or be offended. And I was taught very early that when you have hurt someone and they, uh, they correct you on it or they let you know that you've done something uh, wrong, use that as the opportunity to go out and ask for their mercy to grow deeper in the communion of in the fraternal communion. You know, so like it's not just getting out of ahead of it to survive the relationship, but it's getting out of it's using even the wounds that have been involuntarily inflicted to grow more profoundly in fraternal charity by saying, "I am sorry. What I said to you was absolutely inappropriate, and I am regretful of that. But you are, you're, you know, my, you're, my fraternal relationship with you is very important." And I care that you forgive me. Yeah. And you're closer to that person after you say that in humility than you ever were before. Now, you don't go off and offend people so that you have the occasion to grow <laughs> in friendship with them. But the thing is that actually we do hurt each other. And using those things as occasions for acts of repentance and humility and, and fraternal charity is uh, actually incredibly powerful. Christ empowers us to do that. And, he, and, and so that's part of the mystery of living the mercy of Christ in the midst of, of our life. 
I will say a word real briefly about natural family planning. Um, so I know a lot of couples who, you know, use NFP, and I think maybe a lot of, I'm sure some of you do, and, you know, I mean, some people feel that they ought, they don't really need to do that. They can actually just welcome children um, as they come, and I have friends do that too. But I would say about NFP, I think it has um, extremely powerful spiritual benefits for the couple that are often overlooked because it creates a deep rapport of communication. I mean, as you know, there are moments in the month when if the couple, for a serious reason, wish not to have children, the church accepts that, of course, they can forego sexual relations for about eight days or something equivalent if they're charting and know when they should abstain. And in seeing couples live that year in and year out, I have some friends who've done that at times for long periods of time, it creates a sensitivity of communication and of, I would say, deeper emotional communion during times where they forego sexual relations, which does, I think, help them live more deeply in their relationship with God because they're taking each other's paternity and maternity seriously. They're respecting each other's bodies in their relationship to God. They're less prone to be, um, I mean, in some way, of course, having strong sexual attraction and sexual relationships is very normal and good in marriage, but there are ways it can get imbalanced by sexual obsession or kind of, you know, so I think there's ways NFP keeps people sort of grounded in their sexual desires as sexual desires for the other person that are founded in the common project of having children together and growing in life with God. Their communion with God grows through doing it because they're giving their bodies to God by being aware of their fecundity and living that out in communion with God in prayer. So I would you know, suggest that that is something, if you haven't practiced, consider it because I think it's absolutely crucial to kind of growing in your spiritual life with God. And I would just finish by, um, I'm going to take questions but I want to. I have about uh, three more thoughts here. First, prayer. Um, a lot of young professionals feel pretty overwhelmed as it is with their career, their relationship, getting dinner ready, and uh, keeping the kids sort of uh, more or less, you know, uh, their well-being, assuring their well-being. So it's really hard for a priest to realistically kind of give you any speeches about prayer. Because, um, I mean, I know, I talk to a lot of moms who are like, Father, I, I, I say a prayer, like, on the way to the car, like, you know, I, especially when my child looks like they're about to run into the fire. So, um, uh, as your, so I'm planting a seed here. As your children get older and acquire a little bit more kind of rational, subdued self-control, which, by the way, note of hope, it, it does happen. I mean, it is important to have some kind of collective, invisible life of prayer. So let me tell you a... Let me illustrate this negatively. I was teaching at Providence College uh, Freshman Theology uh, in 2006, and I did a little segment on the belief in the divinity of Christ, like the true... Christ is truly God and truly man. And we, you know, worked on this for a few... And then uh, one day, I'm in my office, and there's a knock on the door, and a young woman comes in. She's 18. She's... And she's from Chicago, and she says, Father, I just need to get this straight. Are you saying that Catholics believe that 
Jesus is God. I said, that is correct. <laughs> and, 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 she, and, I, and she said, I have never heard you. I said, where are you from? She said, I'm from Chicago. I said, yes. And so uh, I said, are you Roman Catholic? She said, I am. I said, well, we say it in the creed on Sundays. Uh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. She's like, yeah, that never really sunk in. I said, well, do your parents pray? And then she got very like, yes, my parents pray. Of course they pray. I said, well, do they pray to Jesus by name? Pause. I don't think I've ever heard that. Okay. So, like, it's very interesting. Like, right, if, if, if I'm a little guy and my dad spanks me and then my dad takes communion from the, on the tongue and I see him or if I see him kneel, then I'm like, the guy who's bigger than me, he's responsible to someone else. If my mother is praying to Jesus devotedly or saying the rosary and calling out the name of Mary, then I'm thinking she's relative to this other person. Now that's like, you know, very simple. But the point is, as they get to the age of reason, your prayer life will directly affect their prayer life. If the man is religious, the children are much more likely to be religious. And I'm sorry, I'm not saying this with any, I mean, as we know, Catholicism is largely a religion of women telling priests what to do. Sorry. <laughs> That's in my experience. Maybe it's different for you. But anyway. Um, but if the, man is, if the man is religious, the children tend to be religious. If the man is not religious, it's a lot more shaky for them. So it's important for the man to find a way that he's comfortable being religious, that he doesn't feel is just incumbent, you know, dependent on his wife's piety. Um, but... Also, with the mother has a very living relationship with Christ and with God and with, and with Christ and with the Virgin Mary. This is often transmitted to the child. So, I mean, it's ma- the stakes are massively high about you eventually bringing a public prayer life in the family into a visible witness to your children. It's just true. Um, two, two last thoughts. You're all called to holiness of life. That's a very strong statement of Vatican II. It's an old teaching in the church. There's a universal call to holiness that is grounded in the sacrament of baptism. If I'm a baptized person, I'm called to holiness. I don't know how I'm going to get there and what's going to happen to me. A lot of things are uncertain. There's going to be both joys and disappointments in life. There will be trials and there will be blessings. But I am called to holiness. And I am a mediocre sinner who is a fragile person who finds the faith difficult to believe in at times, who finds hope and desire for Christ somehow often uninteresting, but I am called to holiness. And God is my Father. And so it's very important to realize that in your marriage, however weak or however obscure it may seem, however weak you may feel or however obscure it may seem, you are called to bring Christ into the world. In our day and age, when I think now it's like, what, 50% of children are born out of wedlock? Less and less people are getting married, and that's a, that's, a, that's a sign of a spiritual deep malaise in our culture and crisis. And I mean, you know, it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out if you don't get married. If, I mean, if you choose not to, in order, I have friends, I'm in my late 40s, I have friends who, good people, but in terms of trying to be 
I mean, it's one thing if you want to get married and it's not an available opportunity. I think God has a particular pathway of sanctification for people like that. But then there's people who can get married or had an opportunity to, but choose to forego it out of a preference for their autonomy that is, as it were, just overly delayed. I mean, you know, it's sort of, and that, that, that can create some very unhappy situations because not, that's not a pathway to God, right? So it's extremely important the witness you give to like the, rea- the concrete reality of being married in Christ. Increasingly, marriage is a, a Christian good. It's a Christian, it's, so it's, it's, marriage is natural, but it's something natural that's increasingly defended and promoted by Christians. And it's a way that you then bear witness by opening your home to people, by witnessing to people to the, of the reality and goodness of marriage and the beauty of children and, you know, the patience you exhibit and the kind of uh, friendship you exhibit in having children with each other. It's a witness to the world about the Christian way of life in our day and age. So I just want to encourage you and thank you because it's a massive social good that's precious and... Uh, your witness is something that also brings the light of Christ out into the world because of your, your embrace of the marital vocation.